This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back to Misconduct. I'm your host, Colleen. I am excited to announce that Misconduct is going to be attending the first annual True Crime Podcast Festival on July 13th in Chicago. Chicago is one of my absolute favorite cities, so come hang out with me and a bunch of other really great podcasts. You're really not going to want to miss this. Go to the website tcpf2019.com to find information about tickets and the event. When you buy your ticket, make sure you mention misconduct on the ticket registration survey. I will also be in Manchester on July 6th and London on July 7th and 8th for the Gen Y They Walk Among Us meetups. I spoke with Rosie from They Walk Among Us and the events are completely sold out. So I'm really looking forward to seeing everybody there. Let me know if you plan on being at the Chicago Festival or at any of the UK meetups because I would love to meet any misconduct listeners who attend. And finally, I wanted to let you know that I'll be taking a couple weeks off in May. When I decided to continue with misconduct, I was concerned about taking on the entire podcast as a solo venture. Because of that, I built in a mini break for myself to work on episodes without the pressure of a release deadline. So because of that, I will be releasing episodes on April 18th and May 2nd, and then I will be taking May 16th and May 30th off. And I'll be returning with new episodes on June 6th. Thank you guys so much for understanding. And with that, let's get into the episode. Listeners of this show know that episodes discuss content that may be distressing or not suitable for all audiences. I wanted to mention before getting into the story that this particular episode deals with a hate crime assault and murder of a transgender teenager. So listener discretion is advised. On October 4th, 2002, Sylvia Guerrero was worried. Her daughter Gwen had not come home last night, and she hadn't heard from her since the day before. Gwen was 17 years old, nearly an adult, and it was not uncommon for her to be gone overnight. 
It was the lack of communication that had Sylvia worried, because Gwen never stayed out of contact for this long. As the day drew to a close, no sign of Gwen was found, and the next day Sylvia filed a missing persons report at the local police station. Much to Sylvia's disbelief, not much of an investigation began with the initial missing persons report. Police decided that because Gwen was trans and had a history of being gone overnight, that she would likely surface and contact her mother eventually. It wasn't until rumors reached Sylvia and her family that Gwen had been outed at a house party and killed by some of the attendees that police took another look at the missing persons case. The sequence of events that the police's investigation would uncover were horrifying and brutally violent. Gwen Amber Rose Araujo was born on February 24, 1985, in the Southern California town of Brawley, located a couple hours east of San Diego. Her parents split up when she was just 10 months old, and Gwen had multiple siblings, both younger and older. At some point in her childhood, Gwen and her family moved to the Bay Area. They settled in the town of Newark, close to San Jose, and some 40 miles away from San Francisco. Gwen was born Edward, named after her father, and she came out as transgender when she was 14 years old, and she started hormone therapy when she was still in high school. Gwen named herself after the singer of No Doubt, Gwen Stefani, and she sometimes went by the name Lita. Once Gwen started growing her hair out and dressing in feminine clothing, her peers at her high school started bullying her. Even today, bullying is something many transgender teens experience if they come out while still in school. But in the late 90s and early 2000s, coming out as trans was even less common and less accepted by one's peers. Even worse, transgender or gender non-conforming students are also sometimes met with hostility at the school's administrative level. According to the National Center for Transgender Equality, 59% of trans students reported that school officials barred them from using a bathroom consistent with their gender identity. If school officials are already over-concerned with what bathroom students use or what clothing they wear, they're unlikely to be helpful when a student is bullied by their peers. This lack of support can lead to a student feeling unsafe at school and even cause them to drop out before graduation. And that was the case with Gwen. Eventually, she dropped out of her high school and enrolled in an alternative high school with hopes of having a better experience at the new school. Unfortunately, this new school was not a right fit either, and she dropped out again before her senior year. Gwen's mother, Sylvia, tried her best to understand what Gwen was going through and support her as much as she could. In later interviews, Sylvia noted that she always knew Gwen was different. Gwen and Sylvia had many conversations where Gwen expressed that she felt she was a woman trapped inside a biologically male body. Sylvia also noted Gwen's bravery for coming out, especially in the town they lived in, and for finding a way to live life on her own terms. Being a teenager on the brink of adulthood is already difficult enough. You're tasked with finding your place in the world and deciding what you want to do with your life. On top of that, Gwen was transgender at a time and in a place where it was not common to be out. Aside from the bullying from peers at school, Sylvia told reporters that Gwen also had a hard time finding a job, 
because her driver's license did not match her name and information on her applications. Once she turned 18, she wanted to go to cosmetology school and become a makeup artist. In the summer of 2002, Gwen was 17 years old. Gwen met Jose Merrill, who also lived in Newark, in a house with his two brothers, Paul and Manny. Jose's house was a hangout spot for himself, his brothers, and their friends, where they often had parties. Since this house was a recurring party spot, it wasn't uncommon for new people to attend the parties and become regulars. Gwen began attending parties at Jose's house and became acquainted with the Merrill brothers, Paul Merrill's girlfriend, Nicole Brown, and some of the other regular fixtures at the Merrill home. Jason Cazares and Michael Magidson, both 24, and 21-year-old Jaron Neighbors met Gwen at a party in early September of 2002. They had established their friendship and secured their place at the Merrill house long before they met Gwen, who they knew as Lita. Gwen had introduced herself to the group as Lita and told them that she was 19, two years older than she actually was at the time. The night Jaron Neighbors met Gwen, he made several comments about some of her features, particularly her hands, appearing more masculine. He also made a comment about her, quote, not being a woman, but this was shrugged off by the group and later at trial was said to have not been a serious concern held by Jaron. Paul Merrill also made a couple of comments that Gwen appeared to be masculine, citing an instance where Gwen got into an argument with him and his girlfriend, Nicole, that turned physical and claimed that Gwen didn't, quote, fight like a girl. Again, these comments were not taken seriously. They were seen as more of flippantly offensive comments about Gwen's appearance. In mid-September, Jose told Jaron that he had sexual relations with Gwen, but they did not have vaginal intercourse because Gwen said she was on her period. A little over a week and a half later, Michael Magidson engaged in sexual relations, but was declined vaginal intercourse by Gwen, who again said that she was on her period. Michael, Jose, and Jaron all discussed the instances and noted that it was odd to them that Gwen told them she was menstruating on two separate occasions nearly two weeks apart. Jaron brought up his previous comments saying Gwen might not be, quote, an actual woman, this time saying he was seriously thinking that she might not be, quote, telling them the truth. The conversation took a serious turn with both Jose and Michael becoming agitated at what Jaron was suggesting. The conversation ended with the three men making vague threats and statements about what could hypothetically happen to Gwen if they discovered that she was not biologically female. Jose became visibly upset, believing that his encounter with Gwen would make him gay if Gwen was not born female. And one thing that I would like to point out here is that whatever sexual encounter Jose or Michael had with Gwen would not make either of them gay. Their thinking comes from a place rooted in the incorrect notion that Gwen was not a woman and that being gay is somehow a negative or bad thing. None of these things are true, yet all men based their next actions on them, which led to a horrible and tragic outcome. A couple of days later, on the night of October 3rd, 2002, Jose, Michael, Jaron, and their friend Jason Cazares went bar hopping before deciding to head to Jose's house around 1.30 a.m. the morning of October 4th. All of the men had been drinking for several hours and were drunk when they arrived at the house. 
They were hoping that when they got to Jose's, Gwen would be there because if she was, they planned on confronting her. In the days since their conversation about Gwen, Jose, Michael, and Jaren had filled their friend Jason in on their concerns, and they had several more conversations about how Gwen may have, quote, made them gay, with Jose in particular getting more irate with each conversation. When the group of men arrived at the Merrill home, they found Paul, Nicole, and Gwen drinking inside. Paul and Nicole went to bed shortly after the group arrived home, and the group plus Gwen began a game of dominoes. At some point during the game, the confrontation with Gwen began. Jose stood up and walked over to Gwen. He put his hands near her throat, as if to mimic strangulation, and then ran his fingers through her hair. Caught off guard by his actions, Gwen asked him what he was doing. He replied with a single question, Are you a man? To which Gwen replied, How could you ask me that? And the four men began asking her multiple questions at once, demanding proof that she was a woman. Michael demanded to feel her up in order to get an answer to Jose's question, to which Gwen flatly denied. It was then suggested that the two go into the bathroom for privacy. Sensing the situation was escalating and this could provide a chance to get out of the house and away from the group of men, Gwen asked to have a cigarette before they went to the bathroom. Jaren blocked her exit and pushed her into the bathroom with Michael. While Michael and Gwen were in the bathroom, Jaren, Jose, and Jason all discussed what they were going to do if they found out that Gwen was trans. The conversation ended with Jose visibly angry, saying, I swear if it's a man, I'm going to fucking kill him. She isn't leaving this house. Jose then got up and began pounding on the bathroom door, demanding to be let in. He nearly kicked it in when Michael opened the door and told him that Gwen was not allowing him to feel her up. At this point, Paul and Nicole had come out of their room and were watching the events unfold. Nicole volunteered to go into the bathroom and forcibly reach up Gwen's skirt. Then Nicole ran out of the bathroom screaming, I can't believe it, it's a fucking man. I can't believe it, I can't cope with this. The men then rushed into the bathroom and began to physically assault Gwen. Jose did not participate in this first assault because he had run off to another part of the house. Nicole found him in another bedroom crying and she told him that she felt it would be best if they let Gwen leave the house now. According to Nicole, Jose agreed and told her that she should be the one to send Gwen away. Back in the bathroom, the initial physical assault had stopped. Manny, Jose's brother, was trying to get Gwen out of the house and away from the group of angry men. Michael put his arm around Gwen's throat and was choking her. Manny confronted Michael and was able to get him to let Gwen go. Manny tried pushing Gwen out the front door to put an end to the confrontation, but Michael and Jaren stopped her from leaving. Once again, Michael put Gwen in a headlock, and when Manny was unable to make Michael let go, he gave up and left the room. Gwen was repeatedly choked by Michael while no one intervened. Sensing the situation was escalating and feeling that they were unable to stop it, Paul, Nicole, and Manny all decided to leave the Merrill house. This move effectively abandoned any attempt to save Gwen and left her at the mercy of Jose, Jaren, Michael, and Jason. 
Jose emerged from the kitchen with a can of food. Upon seeing the can, Gwen pleaded with the men to let her go home to her family. She was struck in the head with the can and also with a frying pan. Jaron and Jason left the Merrill house briefly in Michael's car to get shovels and a rope from Jason's house. Jason stated, we're going to go get some shovels because they're going to kill that bitch. When they arrived back at the Merrill house, Gwen was conscious and sitting on the couch, despite having been choked and hit over the head repeatedly. According to Jaron's later testimony, she was begging the men not to kill her. The last words anyone remembered Gwen speaking were, I told you I was sorry. Jason told the men to knock Gwen unconscious, and they proceeded to hit, kick, and punch her until she was on the floor, not moving. They used the rope to tie Gwen's arms and ankles and placed her on a blanket. Throughout all of this, Gwen did not move and appeared to be unconscious. Jose immediately began cleaning blood out of the carpet to begin to cover up the crime while the rest of the men moved Gwen to the garage. They moved Gwen's body, still wrapped in the blanket, into the bed of Michael's truck. Then Michael, Jose, Jaron, and Jason all got into the truck and began to drive and discuss where they were going to leave Gwen's body. Several ideas were tossed around by the group, and they eventually settled on a place they had previously been camping in the El Dorado National Forest. This location was about 185 miles, or about a three and a half hour drive away from Newark. While they dug a grave in the dark early morning hours, a few yards off of an isolated road, Jose said he was still so mad he wanted to kick Gwen's lifeless body a couple more times. The group put Gwen's body in the ground and covered her with dirt and rocks and then placed a large log over her grave. This was to keep animals from digging up her body. They also took precautions not to leave evidence at the scene by wiping away footprints. The group then made the three and a half hour drive back to Newark and went their separate ways. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As the morning turned to the early afternoon, Gwen's mother Sylvia began to grow worried. It was not uncommon for Gwen to be out overnight or even for a couple of days. She was, after all, on the brink of adulthood but it was not normal for Gwen to be out of contact for so long. 
Sylvia made a missing persons report to the police on October 5th. The police noted that Gwen was trans and had a history of staying out all night, and due to this, they did not make an initial effort to find her, believing that she would contact her mother at some point. Oftentimes, when trans people are reported missing, police departments do not treat the report with the same gravity that they would treat other missing persons reports. Without proper resource allocation, evidence and time is lost, and cases go cold without any real investigation. The same day of the murder, Jaron told multiple friends about the events from the night before. He continued to tell the story over the next few days, and eventually one of the people he told contacted the police. Around the same time, rumors and stories reached Gwen's family that she had been outed as transgender at a house party, and a group of men killed her and buried her in the mountains. With the missing persons report still on file and no sign of Gwen, the police worked with a witness who came forward to wear a wire and record Jaron recounting the assault and murder. Once the police had the recording in their hand, they brought Jaron in for questioning. On October 15, 2002, Jaron was confronted by police with the recorded confession. He immediately agreed to cooperate with the police and made a statement. He also showed the police where the group had buried Gwen. Police found her body in a shallow grave under a log, just where Jaron said she would be. An autopsy was performed and detailed the extent of the brutal attack that Gwen suffered. She had suffered severe blunt force trauma, but her official cause of death was ruled to be strangulation. It was noted that the blunt force trauma was severe enough that it could have eventually led to her death if she had not been strangled. Although the blunt force trauma was severe, Gwen was alive and conscious through the majority of the attack. It was noted that she would be able to speak during much of the attack as well. She was found with rope tied around her hands, knees, ankles, and neck. In her file, it says that based on the ligature marks, the rope was tied around her near the time of her death. After the October 15th confession, Jose, Michael, and Paul were arrested and charged with murder. Upon further questioning, it was discovered that Paul was mistakenly arrested and not involved with the murder as police had initially believed. Nicole provided the police with an alibi for Paul. After Nicole realized that the situation was escalating out of control, she and Paul decided to leave and stay at a friend's house. As she was leaving, Nicole said she saw Gwen alive and conscious sitting on the couch. Manny, Jose and Paul's other brother, also left the house at the same time and corroborated Nicole's story. After this, all charges against Paul were dropped. Nicole, Paul, and Manny all fully cooperated with the police investigation. Jason was initially treated as a witness by the police, who believed him to be an attendee of the party and not a participant in the murder. This changed when Jaron, who had been writing letters to his girlfriend from prison, sent a letter detailing the events of the murder and named all of the participants. In the letter, he described instances where the four discussed a plan for killing Gwen, essentially confessing to premeditated murder. This letter was intercepted by the jail where Jaron was being held, and based on the contents of the letter, Jason was arrested and charged with Gwen's murder in mid-November 2002. 
Jose Merrill, Michael Magidson, Jaron Neighbors, and Jason Cazares were all charged with first-degree murder with an added hate crime enhancement. Jaron took a plea deal early on in the investigation and pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter in exchange for testifying against the other three men. In 2006, he was sentenced to 11 years in prison and has since been released. Michael, Jose, and Jason went to trial in 2004. Nicole, Manny, and Paul testified for the prosecution about the sequence of events that night. The defense attempted to poke holes in the validity of their testimonies by pointing out the amount of alcohol they had consumed and marijuana they had smoked may have affected their memories. However, that also worked against the defense because it made the overall details of the night murky for everyone involved. For example, Jason's lawyer tried to argue that he was outside having a cigarette when Gwen died. But then it was reported by someone else he was one of the last ones to hit Gwen during the final part of the attack. At some point, who was responsible for which specific parts of the attack, or who was outside having a cigarette when, doesn't make much difference. The four men discussed, carried out, and attempted to cover up the murder together. Jaron also testified for the prosecution about the sequence of events at the party during the murder and while burying Gwen's body. The defense employed a tactic known as the trans panic defense. This defense essentially excuses the actions of the attacker by saying that the victim's sexual orientation or gender identity provoked them and played an excusable part in their violence. In short, this defense tactic attempted to claim that the perpetrator suffered from a temporary lapse in sanity. In this case, the defense tried to argue that when the men discovered Gwen was trans, they became so enraged that they were not in their right mind when they killed her. This defense tactic is similar to the gay panic defense, and both have been heavily criticized when used during trial. AB 1160 also known as the Gwen Araujo Justice for Victims Act, was signed into law in 2006. This law requires that juries in California ignore these types of bias-based defense tactics when considering lesser charges. In 2014, then-California Governor Jerry Brown signed AB 2501 into law, which banned the gay and trans panic defenses from being used at trial altogether. AB 2501 states that discovery of, knowledge about, or potential disclosure of the victim's actual or perceived gender, gender identity, gender expression, or sexual orientation does not by itself constitute sufficient provocation to justify a lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter. Illinois and Rhode Island have followed suit in subsequent years and signed similar bills into law. The first trial ended with a mistrial due to a deadlock jury. The jury had issues with the charge being first-degree murder, and not all of the jurors felt there was enough evidence to prove premeditation. The second trial took place in May 2005. Due to the hard work of transgender rights activists, there was a push for information about the trans panic defense and how the defense tried to blame Gwen for her own death. 
This forced the defense to change their tactics, and they argued that the murder happened in the heat of the moment. All three men took the stand and testified in their own defense. Their lawyers attempted to have the men sentenced to probation and argued that the circumstances behind the crime were unlikely to happen again. I'm no legal expert, but that argument seems flimsy at best. In September of 2005, Michael and Jose were found guilty of second-degree murder. The jury decided that the hate crime enhancement did not apply in this case. A juror stated that they felt that the evidence showed that Gwen was killed to cover up an assault that had gotten out of control and not because the men had discovered she was transgender. The jury deadlocked on a verdict for Jason. To avoid going to a third trial, he pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter. On January 27, 2006, Michael and Jose were sentenced to 15 years to life. As part of Jason's plea deal, he was sentenced to six years. As I mentioned before, Jaron completed his prison sentence and was released on parole. Jason served six years and was released in July of 2012. Jose was released on parole in 2016 with the blessing of Gwen's mother, Sylvia. She said that she believed that Jose had shown true remorse for his crime. Michael is currently still in prison, and he has been denied parole, which Sylvia advocated for. He is eligible for another parole hearing in 2019. At his last parole hearing, he said that he needed more time in prison, and Sylvia said that she did not believe that he had shown remorse for his actions. Sylvia had Gwen's name changed posthumously to Gwen Amber Rose Araujo. Sylvia stated that Amber Rose was the other name she had chosen for Gwen when she was born. Sylvia and her other children suffer from PTSD after dealing with the heinous and tragic loss of Gwen and the grueling legal process. Despite this, they have advocated for trans rights, particularly in the legal system. Sylvia founded a foundation called the Gwen Araujo Memorial Fund for Transgender Education. She also partakes in speaking events to raise awareness. One bit of good that came out of this tragic crime is that Gwen's murder brought about two laws that will restrict leniency for similar crimes that are committed in the future. AB 1160 and AB 2501 were both crucial steps in not allowing those who commit violent crimes against trans people to receive lesser sentences based purely on their own biases. While this progress is good progress, it is not enough to offer widespread protection to trans people in the United States. More needs to be done. Anti-trans violence is one of multiple systemic issues that trans people face. The National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs released a report indicating that 72% of victims of LGBTQ hate-motivated homicides in 2013 were transgender women. Aside from being targets of violence at a disproportionately higher rate, many trans people express that they do not always feel comfortable turning to the police for help meaning that violence against trans people is probably underreported. This may be because the way the system is set up generally works against trans people. 
While being the target of violence is a large problem, it's hardly the only one that a transgender person might face. Only some states in the U.S. have made it illegal to fire someone for their sexual orientation or gender identity. It is totally okay in certain states to be fired because you're trans. And the same goes for housing discrimination. Only 18 states in the District of Columbia have explicitly made housing and employment discrimination based on gender identity and sexual orientation illegal. Another barrier trans people face, and something that Gwen had also experienced, was the hardship of not having your identification documents, such as your driver's license or your birth certificate, match your preferred name or appearance. Gwen found it hard to find a job when all of her identifying documents listed the name and sex that she was given at birth. Many of these documents are required to do anything, from getting a job to traveling or even registering for school. You can go through the process of having these documents changed, but some states require you to prove a medical transition, which is something that is too expensive for many people to afford. Gwen's murder is a case that I remember following when the killers were on trial. Every time I read about it, I am struck by how unfair it is that her life was taken due to the bigotry and anti-trans bias of others. Gwen struggled so much with trying to find her place in the world, and she didn't even get a chance to do that before her life was cut short. I wanted to leave you with a couple of resources that you can check out to find out more about issues facing the transgender community. They are informative and much more qualified to speak on these issues than I am. First is the National Center for Transgender Equality, and second is the Human Rights Campaign section on understanding the issues facing the trans community. I will also link these resources and others in the show notes and on the website. The final thought I will leave with you is a quote from an op-ed, which I will also link, written by Sylvia in 2006 after the second trial. She writes, I'm angry. Angry that Gwen's brothers and her nieces and nephews won't get to grow up knowing her the way her aunts, uncles, older sister, and I did. Angry that instead of celebrating her birthday, we get together each year to commemorate her death. Angry that, in both trials, the defendants tried to blame Gwen for her own murder. Angry that other young lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender kids continue to face the same discrimination she did in our public schools and workforce. I'm also grateful. Grateful that my family and our friends rose to the challenge and sat through two gruesome and explicit criminal trials to try to make sure everyone knew that Gwen was loved for who she was. I'm grateful for the support we've received from perfect strangers who have told us in person and through email that we are in their thoughts and prayers. I'm grateful for the remorse that two of the defendants and some of their family members have expressed to me and my family. And I'm sad. Sad that I'll never get to see Gwen grow into the beautiful woman she would have become. Sad that four men chose to end my daughter's life and throw away their own simply because they thought they were acting like real men. And sad that other transgender women have been killed since Gwen's murder and that we don't have a realistic end in sight to that violence. None of us can change the way the world was on October 4th, 2002, but each of us now has an important role to play in creating a state where we can celebrate more birthdays and commemorate fewer murders. 
And that wraps up the show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. For more information on this episode, visit the website misconductpodcast.com. You'll find links to further reading on this episode and more information about misconduct. I also want to give a huge thank you to Jess for her research assistance in this episode. If you want to get this episode early and ad-free, then check out my Patreon. If you subscribe at the $3 per month or higher level, you can listen to the episode before it is released on the regular feed. And thank you to all of our existing Patreon supporters. You help make the show possible. If you have a second, head on over to my social media pages to let me know what you think about this week's episode and share your thoughts and opinions with other listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MisconductPod. If you have a case that you would like to see covered, check out our show notes for a link for a Google form where you can submit the case. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.